Lord, open my lips that my mouth may proclaim your praise. In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. Psalm 121 begins, I lift up my eyes to the hills. From where is my help? to come and he answers his own question my help comes from the Lord the maker of heaven and earth how then do we know the answer to this question how do we know that our help comes from the Lord the maker of heaven and earth Well, Paul tells us in his letter to the Romans, he says, God's invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. In other words, we know that there is a God because of what we see in creation. Creation reveals a creator. Uh, Theologians call this general revelation. God is generally revealed to us in that which he has created. I want to read to you uh, something that comes out of a book by Ed Little called Know Why You Believe. Dr. Edwin Hubble plotted the speeds of the galaxies and confirmed that all the galaxies are moving apart from us and one another at enormous speeds. The law bearing his name states that the farther away a galaxy is, the faster it moves. The staggering implication of this is that at one time, all matter was packed into a dense mass at temperatures of many trillions of degrees. A dense mass of many trillions of degrees that then expanded out and is continuing to expand outwards. Scientists who observe this phenomena theorize the universe must have originally resembled a white hot fireball in the very first moments after the Big Bang occurred. A confirmation of this theory came in 1965 when two physicists made the surprising discovery that the Earth was entirely bathed in a faint glow of radiation. Its waves followed the exact pattern of wavelength expected in a giant explosion. Scientists since then have reconfirmed there could be no other obvious explanation than that these radiation waves were the aftermath of the Big Bang. Dr. Robert Jastrow, who states that he is agnostic in religious matters, comments on the theory. Now we see how the astronomical evidence leads to a biblical view of the origin of the world. He is a non-religious person. Now we see 
how the astronomical evidence leads to a biblical view of the origin of the world. I might say that the biblical view informs the astronomical, but anyway, this is what he says. The details differ, but the essential elements in the astronomical and biblical accounts of Genesis are the same. The chain of events leading to man commence suddenly and sharply at a definite moment in time in a flash of light and energy. Scientists have traditionally rejected the thought of a natural phenomenon which cannot be explained, even with unlimited time and money. There is a kind of religion in science. Every event can be explained in a rational way as a product of some previous event. In other words, every effect must have its prior cause. Now, science has proven that the universe exploded into existence at a specific moment, and it asks, what cause produced this effect? Who or what put the matter and energy into the universe? And science does not answer these questions. Jastro concludes with this monumental statement. For the scientist who has lived by his faith in the power of reason, the story ends like a bad dream. He has scaled the mountains of ignorance. He's about to conquer the highest peak, and as he pulls himself over the final rock, he's greeted by a band of theologians who've been sitting there for centuries. <laughs> for many, this is an exceedingly strange development unexpected by all but theologians. They have always accepted the word of the Bible. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. The earth was formless void, and darkness covered the face of the deep, while a wind from God swept over the face of the waters. Then God said, let there be light, and there was light. See, we know that there is a God through general revelation, through just looking outside, through the intricacies of how we are made in the womb, how we are knit together. This is general revelation, but it does not tell us about the character of God. It does not tell us about the will of God for his creation. It does not tell us his story or our part in that story. It does not tell us about his mission to save that which he first created. For that, we need special revelation. We need a different kind of revelation. And that comes to us through God's holy living word. This is what Paul is talking about when he writes to Timothy, who he's left in charge of the church in Ephesus. He says, The sacred writings are able to instruct you for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is inspired by God and is useful for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. Now we use that word inspired 
when we translate this word from the Greek, um, but unfortunately it has other connotations in our modern age vocabulary. Um, you, 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 we hear on the television the word in football, um, that was an inspired play. Um, I say we, I don't, because I don't watch football. <laughs> but we were having that conversation about breakfast. Pat thought that was hysterically funny uh, when I said that at the 8 o'clock service, because the minute it's on, I'm in another room. But, but that is a term, inspired, inspired poets or inspired writing. But the root of that term actually is, is breath. Um, it's the breath of God. So that we find in some translations that scripture is God breathed. That doesn't mean that um, he was giving dictation and somebody else was typing it out. It means that he, ins he breathed into his very life into the people who then wrote down his words. Through them, though, their personalities come through. We know Jeremiah is the weeping prophet. As he's writing these words, he is weeping over the people. But it is God-breathed. It's not a dead document, like Caesar's Gallic Wars, part one and two. Anybody have to read those and memorize those in school? I did. But, um, you know, it's a dead document. The Bible is a living word because the Holy Spirit still lives into it, still inspires, still breathes into it. And then as we digest it, as we take the Bible, the Holy Scriptures into ourselves, they continue to live within us. And so we get this broadening uh, understanding, not just head understanding, but heart understanding of who God is, this special revelation of God. God reveals himself. He is a steadfast God, forgiving God, a good God, a trustworthy God, a God who loves, whose glory fills the world. These are the things that we learn about God in Holy Scripture and that keeps breathing into us. It teaches us, Paul says to Timothy. It doesn't just teach us about God, but that teaching starts to come into, the more we read, the more we delve into the Scriptures, the more that we allow the Scriptures to form us and to form who we are in God, then it, it's not just teaching information, but it really is a part and a fabric of who we are. But it also, he says, is a reproof. It is a challenge. Sometimes when we're reading scripture, it's like, uh-oh, I didn't follow where the Lord was leading, gently, kindly. And it's a reproof, a correction on the path. It brings us back onto the path of wholeness where we are complete in God. And it's a training up in righteousness. If we follow his ways, 
then the righteousness of Christ becomes our righteousness. We, we have that righteousness. It's imputed to us anyway on the cross when we receive Christ as our Lord and Savior. But then we grow in righteousness as a transformation as we deep, delve deeper and deeper into his word so that we do the works that he's given us to do, not as some kind of a burden, but so that we may be blessed in those things as well. But then Paul speaks a word of prophecy. He says, but the time is coming when people will not put up with sound doctrine, but have itching ears. They will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own desires and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander away to myths. Remember this, a myth has some nugget of truth in it, but it has so many different accretions that it doesn't look the same anymore. It has lots of things that have attached to it. And so that people will go only where they hear what they want to hear. And if they stop hearing what they want to hear, they'll go on to the next place and the next place and the next place. They will have itching ears and accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own desires. People will make the Bible say what it never said in the first place to the original audience for whom it was written. It can never say what it never said in the first place. But we can see layers within it. And he says to Timothy and to every preacher or teacher since Timothy, keep going. Whether the time is right or wrong, to rebuke, to warn and encourage with patience and explanation. See, this is not a bludgeon. It's not so that we can use this and knock you over the head and say, okay, that's it, it's in there now, right? The Bible is never supposed to be used as a cudgel. It's supposed to be revealed like peeling back the skin of an onion over and over again with patience, revelation, this special revelation of this wonderful God who wants to be known. And so we get to know God through his holy living word, but we also get to know God and his will for us individually through prayer. It's reading of scripture and prayer. That's what the epistle is about, the reading of scripture on a regular basis. And the gospel is about persevering in prayer. Um, and so here's this unjust judge. You know, he doesn't care for God, doesn't care for any human, doesn't care what anybody thinks about him. And yet this woman keeps going back and going back and going back. And finally, it's okay already, we'll do it. Well, that's not to say that that's the image of God, that God finally throws up his hands and says, okay. No, it's, it's a contrast. If this unjust judge will do this, then the just God, 
who is full justice, how much more will he answer the prayers of his beloved? How much more will he listen? But still, there is a discipline of perseverance, of patience in prayer, of going back to the Lord. It's, it's a common theme in, in Scripture. You know, our culture is immediate gratification. I want it now, I want it when I want it. And, of course, our electronic culture tends to exacerbate that. Let's just get it done now. There's, there's not a lot of waiting. But the Scripture tells us that there's waiting because God's timing is not our timing. I want things done. I say, God, you know, today would be really good. Hmm. Okay, well, then tomorrow would be really good. But his timing is not our timing. I, I might have told you this story before. When I, I was ordained in 2007 and I was an associate priest out at a new church plant in, uh, in Oviedo at Church of the Incarnation and I was uh, quite happy there doing the ministry that was there uh, for um, a couple of years and um, a year and a half. And then the canon to the ordinary, Canon Bennett, called me and said, Sarah, I want to start... We want we." Uh, want to start putting your name in uh, for searches to be a rector. And I said, well, Ernie, I'm really quite happy where I am. And he said, yes, Sarah, but you will be obedient, won't you? (laughs) (laughs) And um, and I said, well, uh, yes, um, but really the only congregation that I feel called to is Church of the Good Shepherd in Maitland. And um, Robbie Robertson is, uh, is there. And I just read on the clergy listserv that he's going to be there for five or six years. That he's, He said, yeah, that's right. So we're going to put your name in here. And I'm going, but I don't feel called there. And he said, you haven't even looked at them. You haven't gone there. I said, well, what can I tell you? There's absolutely nothing. And... Uh, so he harumphed a bit. <laughs> and, um, and then uh, a couple of months later, he said, so um, they're pulling together um, a search committee, a search at, um, at Good Shepherd. Uh, do you want your name to go in there? And I said, well, yes, that would be good. So my name went in. And um, that was, I think, in the October. And, and it went through until... Um, the march and I got a letter saying thanks but no thanks I mean a very nice letter but saying you know we've concluded our search and thank you for putting your name in I thought well Lord I really messed up on that one Um, didn't hear that well at all and so but you know ministry was still going on at incarnation and it was all good and things were going really well and and um, and then I got another letter um, not mentioning the previous discernment at all uh, the, pre- the previous search and, um, and I called and asking me you know, if I would be willing to be in this one and so I called Ernie and I said what's going on well they're starting over again and I said um, okay they, they didn't mention the, fir- the last one at all he said we'll just go with the flow so here I am <laughs> <laughs> 
There's a long story in the interim with that, but I won't go into that right now. But, you know, and then people came to me afterwards and said, you know, I'm so sorry about that first one. I'm going, not at all. Not at all. Do you know this was God's perfect timing? That was God's perfect timing. I don't regret that at all. In fact, had I come from the first um, discernment, from the first search, it would not have been the right time. In fact, it would have crippled my ability to be rector here because in, the, in those months in between, Robbie, uh, Robbie and the congregation did some things that completely provided a path for me to enter into ministry here that was very different than what would have been a few months earlier. You see, God knew. It, it was not a problem. It was God's perfect timing. And so, you know, people came up and said, oh, I'm so sorry, but I go, no, you did me a favor. God knew. And this is perfect. You see, we're to persevere and be patient in prayer. Sometimes it's because, you know, God's timing is not our timing. Sometimes it's so that we actually acknowledge that the answer to prayer is actually God answering our prayer and not some kind of natural phenomenon. You know the word, there are no coincidences, only God incidences. Sometimes there are some things that are preventing the answering to prayer and God's working on us inside. There's maybe some unforgiveness that needs to be dealt with, some other things that need to be dealt with before he can fully bless us with the answer to prayer. But prayer is not just requests, you know that. Prayer is also just listening to the Lord. It's just sitting and having him speak to you. My beloved, I love it when you just come and sit with me. Hear my voice tell you, you are loved. You are beloved. You are all. You are perfect in my eyes. Just let that wash over you in that quiet time, in that prayer time. You know, uh, John Wesley, who was an Anglican priest uh, up until through his, his, he died an Anglican priest, but Methodism came out of uh, what he started as the small groups that he started, and that was subsequent to his death. But he once said famously, read scripture and pray every day, or you will be a trifler all your days. You see, the Lord at the end of this passage in the Gospel says, asks this question. When the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? When the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? And I would say along with John Wesley that unless we are in God's living word to us daily, and if we are not in prayer daily, then our faith dries up rather than expands out like a sponge. It gets short and dry 
like a sponge drying up. But when we're in the living word and we're in prayer daily, it just gets saturated with the life of God. And so I pray that we would be a people whose faith just expands out and the life of God comes into us so that we are dripping with the life of God. In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.